So just to restart our thinking on natural law then. So we've been thinking about natural law, so ethics, what the good Gentile is able to know without the benefits of supernatural revelation, without the benefit of scripture, tradition, Jesus. Um, he's able to know a lot. Reason alone is able to know all, in Catholic thought, all of the moral law, all the natural law. Every particular commandment you're going to pick out, he's able to know it. Um, in fact, there is a debate among Catholic scholars seeking to find an example of a Christian precept, a Christian law, that a man of reason isn't able to figure out. Um, uh, one example given is the command to attend Sunday Mass. As you know, as a Catholic, you are under pain of mortal sin, you have to attend Sunday Mass. Um, well, how can the atheist who doesn't know Jesus know he's obliged to attend Sunday Mass? Well, he is able by reason to know that there is a God. He is able by reason to know he is bound to worship God and to do it in a sensible fashion. And that, the ethicists say, is kind of the reasonable core of that command to attend Sunday Mass. Um, okay, so, back to... That sounds reasonable. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, and also, uh, Muslims have priorities. There is a sense that there yes, is this right. periodicity which could be natural. It is natural, right, yeah. right. So that God doesn't randomly make the Sabbath, that actually it causes. Hmm? Sorry, periodicity. Periods. He and I have arguments about Americanisms. And he's just used periodicity. Facticity versus oh. fact. But isn't an Americanism in itself an Americanism? It's an Americanism in two notions. It's a big jump from the reasonable core to attending Sunday Mass, isn't it? It's a massive jump. It's a jump that would be said from the natural to the supernatural. So that the supernatural builds on the natural, but it's not a completely different obligation. It's a specifying of that natural obligation. Could, could, could understand or could work out the reason that he, he, he should worship God, mm -hmm. but how he should worship him, how he can, he's able naturally to work out that he should therefore attend the Mass. He, he can, well, no, the, the Mass bit he can't work out without coming to Christian faith. Right. But he can figure out that he needs to worship God, yeah. that he needs to do so on a regular basis. Yeah. And that he needs to do so, as St. Thomas said, using something sensible. Because he's got a body. His body must somehow be involved in the worship. And that, at the level of the natural law, is the bit of the Sunday Mass obligation he's able to figure out. So that when we say every Christian precept, a man of reason is able to know without faith. There's lots of that specifying of that that you can only know with Christian faith, like Sunday Mass. But the kind of core within that that is reason, there is a, a, a reason core in every precept. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Okay. With the reason core. Right. Uh, well, so I'm... Okay, so what... Why is this important? It's important on one level... So that everything we are preaching about as Christian preachers um, 
we're not randomly throwing new things at people. We're actually pointing out to them what is in their own nature, even if they don't know it. So I'm not saying to you, you need to attend Sunday Mass as something randomly put outside of them. No, I am revealing to them something that is actually in their nature, that they owe it to God to worship him on a regular basis in a bodily manner. Not necessarily through Sunday Mass. That the Sunday Mass bit they know by supernatural revelation, but that it is the specifying, the fulfilling of what was already known at a natural level. Which would imply the two are not being separate. One leads to the other. Yes, one leads to the other. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, let's look at this from a slightly more specific angle. On page four, um, I've introduced the concept of the end here as another way of thinking what we mean when we talk about nature and natural. So said there, nature, the end, and discerning the natural, the, the law. Now, as I said, as you remember, or you might remember, the very first lecture, when we call a human act good, a human act is judged good if it is in keeping with the end of that activity. So, another, this pen is a good pen if it writes well, if it does its, achieves its end. I lecture well if you learn something that there is an end to what my activity is. If, it, if my activity achieves that end, then it is a good act. If I lecture with a beautiful voice, but you learn nothing, then it's not good lecturing. It's not achieving the end. So, in every activity, we need to see what the end of the activity is, which is another way of indicating what the nature of the activity is. So what's the nature of teaching? The nature of teaching is enabling you to learn something. So the nature of the activity and the end that the activity is directed to are kind of two sides of the same coin. So let me read through what I've put there. The nature of a thing can be deduced by observation experience, for example. So that out there is a tree. I can observe that. Um, Experience has shown me that. The end of a thing is known from its nature. So that is an apple tree. Its end is to produce apples. The law. The law directs us to the proper use of a thing. And the proper use of a thing obviously depends on its nature, its end. So it directs us to use a thing in keeping with its nature, directs us to use a thing in such a way that it achieves its end. I'll put two examples here, eating and sex. Um, so, the end of eating. So, what is the end of eating? So, we have this activity, eating. It has a nature, it has an end. Well, its end is nourishment. I eat in order to nourish my body. I've noted that pleasure attaches as a completion of a healthy human act, but pleasure is not the end in itself. Um, so St. Thomas says, every completed good act has a corresponding pleasure that is proper to that act and completes that act. Give the example there that you 
write an essay, you complete the essay, and there is a type of intellectual pleasure that goes with that completion, quite different to the kind of pleasure that goes with eating a cream cake. Um, but there is a type of pleasure that corresponds to the type of activity and is an indication that the activity is completed, has achieved its end. Whereas when you're doing something and you fail to achieve it, you fail to get to the end, there's kind of a, a corresponding different frustration that corresponds to the type of activity. So pleasure is not the end. Pleasure attaches to the end, but it isn't the end in itself. Um, so said that gluttonous eating is not in keeping with the function of eating, therefore it's, it's evil. So I eat to nourish my body. I'm able to eat in a gluttonous manner. I'm able to eat in a way that pays no attention to the measure of nourishment. When I do that, I am not eating in accord with the end. I'm not eating in accord with the nature of the activity. And that is therefore an evil act. Is there a suggestion of Thomas was gluttonous? That is a Franciscan lie spread by the Jesuits <laughs> <laughs> to discredit the Dominicans. He was certainly large. He was called the dumb ox. Um, he was presumably large, but I don't know, to be honest. St. Thomas does also say that um, gluttony is rarely a mortal sin. I've heard, it, <laughs> I've heard it alleged that he was being soft on that because... <laughs> Do you see the structure of what we're talking about here, though? That you have an activity, you figure out the nature of that activity by looking at the end of it, and that is the natural law in a simple activity. So well, natural pleasure itself, therefore, is an evidence. Pleasure is not an end, it's an evidence yes. of what is already true. Yes. Is that right? The pleasure is an evidence that, that what you're doing is, is, is consistent with the end of your nature. Uh, at least in part. Obviously, you can have a sexual pleasure in adultery, but that wouldn't have the further type of pleasure that would come with marital love. So it's not just a physical pleasure that we're talking about here. Mm. Uh, yeah. 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 So there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole package of different pleasures. So just because you get a pleasure doesn't mean you've achieved what it's fully about. Mm. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I wasn't here at the last lecture, but just looking at the notes, mm -hmm. um, you dissected this sentence, a human act is just good, right. is keeping the end of that activity, because you, you actually give a lot of examples where perhaps the means doesn't justify the end. And no, the end, doesn't, the end doesn't justify the means, is what we were looking at last time. Right, okay, but you give um, various examples which actually makes it look, uh, and all the examples are excellent, but I think it, it made it not quite as simple mm. that the human act is judged good if it's in keeping with the end, because uh, there are occasions um, when perhaps um, um, a good end is justified 
Oh, you mean a bad act is allegedly yeah. justified yeah. by a good end? Yeah. Yes. Um, I think that's, well, obviously true. That's what I was talking about last time. Yeah. But that's a slightly different set of issues to what we're looking at here. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I think we would probably want to throw into that that one of the measures... So if you got to your good end via an evil means, you would probably, in this context of pleasure thing, there would be some type of pleasure and fulfilment that would be lacking to you in comparison to if you'd achieved that good end via also a good means. Yeah. Yeah. So to make the comparison again of adultery, if, you, if a married man has sex with his wife in a loving context that brings not just a physical pleasure, but a loving pleasure, a, a more complete fulfilment, yeah. in comparison to whether he gets to the end of physical pleasure with somebody else's wife, mm. in which he does get that physical pleasure, but there's a bigger end that is being missed, um, and therefore another pleasure that would go with the living of marriage. In some ways, it is. There's the missing element of the soul. If you don't have a soul, as, right. the, as the soul is natural to humans. Yes. So it's not like yes. you're saying it's supernatural, but if yes. you deny the soul, um, then you you can't argue, you cannot argue from it is too off without the soul. Mm -hmm. and, so when and when we're talking about nature and natural, my nature is body and soul. Yeah. It, back to it, it's, I'm not just an animal. So you do have to have the prior commitment to yourself. Uh, and so when we talk about supernatural as distinct from supernatural, actually what our terms mean in, in this context, yeah. obviously the soul is a supernatural thing, but my nature is body and soul. Yeah, yeah but it's natural to humanity to be... And, and that was part of the and, and, and the and the accessibility of that itself to reason was part of the mm. anthropology thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's you it's know, that, that, of, that we can that, that the um, that the that the, the, the kind of rationally accessible bits of us being body and soul of our nature, in other words, that we have reason and will, is accessible is itself accessible to, yeah. to reason, and therefore one would have in a discussion have to try and uh, and go back to that. Yes, but it's not inaccessible. Re it is true, but but and to deny and, and to bracket the existence of this, the necessary existence of a soul in the human person. Mm -hmm. uh, if you if you do not establish that, then you cannot proceed any further uh, to to many moral precepts. Yeah, yeah. But you can. That's the point. The, the, the point is, we are well. Yeah, exactly. But so that is an a priority: is the existence of the soul. And the body, they're all priori. Well, they're true. Whether they're, you, they're whether true, you establish yes. their truth or not. I think you can establish it. Well, so yeah. Plato had arguments for the existence of the soul. Um, Plato, I mean, it's well, all the way back. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, can we look at the other example I've put here? Um, so, as I spelled it out here, the, the human sexual act. So, what is the end of the human, human sexual act? Well, we'll actually look at that more after lunch. Um, but I've put here a twofold end, procreation and union, union of the couple. Now, promiscuous sex is contrary to the end of the act, and therefore it's evil. So what's the problem with promiscuous sex? 
well, there is an end, a nature of this activity, sexual intercourse, and promiscuous sex isn't respecting that end, isn't achieving that end. And therefore it is unnatural, contrary to the natural law. So we look at the activity, we figure out the nature of that activity by looking at the kind of thing it is, figuring out its end, and if a particular action is contrary to that end, it's contrary to human nature, it's contrary to the natural law. Promiscuous sex is contrary to union, yes? Sorry? Promiscuous sex is contrary to union. Yes. To exclusive union. Uh, permanent union, yes. So, yeah, I suppose there's a, a fleeting union, obviously. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's what I mean in saying union is there, yes. Okay, final point before lunch. Um, the last page, page six. Uh, just about the Ten Commandments in the natural law. And this is actually spelling out something I've already said. But um, So as I've said there, um, quoting from St. Thomas, this is, All the precepts of the old law are so many parts of the precepts of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So, therefore, the Ten Commandments contain all of the moral law. So... You, I think I gave you an examination of conscience I often distribute based on the seven deadly sins. But actually a more common format for examinations of conscience is according to the Ten Commandments, which I don't favour, because I don't favour a commandment focus in morality. But there's a theological basis for putting all your sins in your examination by the Ten Commandments, and it's this, that all of the natural moral law is in the Ten Commandments. So everything must fit in there somewhere. So therefore, when you're stretching your examination of conscience, it's going to fit in one of those ten. That's kind of your theological reason for that structure. Okay, let me read those two paragraphs from the Catechism I've put there. The Ten Commandments belong to God's revelation. At the same time, they teach us the true humanity of man. They bring to light the essential duties and therefore indirectly the fundamental rights inherent in the nature of the human person. The Decalogue contains a privileged expression of the natural law. St. Irenaeus says, From the beginning God had implanted in the heart of man the precepts of the natural law. He was content to remind him of them. This was the Decalogue. So the Ten Commandments are a reminder of the natural law that was put in us at creation. Second paragraph from the Catechism there. The commandments of the Decalogue, although accessible to reason alone, i.e. unaided reason, have been revealed. To attain a complete and certain understanding of the requirements of the natural law, sinful humanity needed this revelation. So St. Bonaventure puts it, a full explanation of the commandments of the Decalogue became necessary in the state of sin, because the light of reason was obscured and the will had gone astray. So the Ten Commandments are not saying something new. They're saying what God had said, promulgated at creation in the natural law, 
but they are a privileged expression of the natural world. At the bottom of the page there, I've noted a little problem that I've already indicated. How can unaided reason discern that we must keep the Sabbath, the third commandment, if the Sabbath is a matter of revelation, supernatural revelation? Whereas honouring your parents, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, are obviously accessible to unaided reason. Um, so that is a slight conundrum there, but as I already indicated, the, the supernatural revelation is adding a specificity to a command that was already there in the natural order. And your, 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 um, your explanation of the way in which the precept um, that we must uh, be together at Eucharist on Sunday, mm -hmm. that, that there is a pointer in reason to, yeah. towards this. Mm -hmm. Would I have thought um, apply also to the keeping of the Sabbath? Mm -hmm. As because the heart of the Sabbath is is the worship of worship of God, mm. and we may use the same the same pointer argue, uh, They're pointers rather than, than arguments. I think. I don't. I don't know. I wouldn't be prepared to. I wouldn't argue over over pointers and arguments. But yeah. there is a sort of because it's the, the Sabbath in. Mm. In Old Testament Jewish thought, it's precisely the seventh day of creation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so a, the, the point of the Sabbath, honour the Sabbath, is to be honest of the Creator, mm -hmm. which is the link between the supernatural and the natural. Does that make sense? Yes, though you only know it from the Bible by a supernatural revelation. So, um, it's just unreasonable. But it is an element of creation. But we so it's neat. say that if you don't have a day off, you will be ill. Yes, if right. If you don't Unless spend time with priest. your family, you will have no family. No, I If you mean. don't spend time, with, I mean, I'm taking the Jewish precept here, yeah. Yeah. of time for God, time for family, time for self, and time for rest. Unless right? you're a Catholic priest. Unless you're married. Then you don't need a day of rest. <laughs> how, how do we count then for countries like Cambodia, Thailand, which have a non-theistic outlook, being, being Buddhist by and large, where mm. they don't stop? There are no public holidays for attached to any religious significance. They have um, national days that, that are linked to the, if you like, social calendar. Um, but they don't have a Sabbath as such. I think St. Thomas would say these are like the Germanic tribes who think theft is okay. That this is a perverse culture. But and they have, they have many other culture in, in many respects and very well ordered. Well, and the Germans had many things they were happy with as well, but that it's not as happy a culture as it would be that had what actually reason is able to figure out the periodic rest. Mm. And that those countries you listed are actually obvious exceptions to what the rest of human history is manifesting this mm. experience. I make the example because when I get into the conversation with non-Christian friends and, and non-Catholic colleagues, mm. they, they look at reason mm. and a definition of nature as binding, restricting, causing guilt. Right. Is that we, you know, we ought to follow our nature, mm. i.e. our inclinations, is what mm -hmm. they mean by this. And any censure on that is, is, an, is alien 
and mm. therefore wrong, therefore religion mm. is wrong, it's mm. kind of Stephen Fry logic, therefore it's not a force mm. for good in society, it mm. makes people feel better about themselves. We would look at it from a very different yes. viewpoint, and we are looking at this from opposing ends of the spectrum very often. Mm. No, actually, that's a good, useful, um, apologetic tool. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Is it not true to just get back to that idea? The commandments are a certain. There's a sense of that they have a certain canonical priority in terms of the, as a schema for doing moral theology. So it, all the way back mm-hmm. throughout divine revelation, all the way back through. God's dealing with people, the, the Decalogue has always had a certain normative status, and you might use other schemas like seven devices, yeah. but the point being is that that's always going to have the, the sort of a normative, a sort of prior status for doing more theology. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Then? I think so, yes, yes. Um, and I think that's why the Catechism has structured itself. Um, on the commandments, even though it's used a lot of virtue terminology, yeah. it's wanting to be faithful to revelation. But so, can we make that the last thing before lunch? But it's so true, isn't it? That um, it, it again depends on what we uh, what we mean by you know what kind of uh, things we connect to the idea of law, and that is different now to one, what it is in, in a Western post-Kantian kind of. Um, setting, law is always going to be seen as an external restricting factor, whereas I don't think that's the experience. For, for example, if you think of the, the, the Jewish experience of the dancing with the Torah, in the, you know, the kind of mystic, so, so uh, the kind of idea of a life-giving road, a life-giving way, rather than a restricting law, is something that is, is, is more accessible to them than to us. And they can love the law. Yes, which was. Exactly, precisely. Because law means yeah. something else before it means what we naturally, what most people around, the, your colleagues assume that law means. It's an external force that constrains us, restricts us, and dehumanizes us. And I think, in the deeper Catholic sense, the, the grasping and equating of reason and law mm-hmm. should liberate us from that. Even though, within our Catholic tradition as well, we've got a lot of this. Uh, a lot of the, the formulation of Catholic moral theology has been very law-focused and voluntaristic. Mm-hmm. Um, and but that isn't the root of what we should and, and there is, it, 